Yes, Lord, we, we do praise your name tonight. We think of the holy name of God, the name encapsulated in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray that you'd be present to, uh, with us tonight and in us tonight. For all of us who are Christians, we know your spirit is dwelling in us as your temple. God, we thank you for that tonight. We thank you for the fact that Jesus accomplished that so that we could be your dwelling place, that you would dwell among your people in us and among us. God, would you be here tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, thank you all for being here tonight. It's good to see you. Let me get this set up here. There we go. Uh, if if um, you've been here, if you haven't been here for a while, and or, or never been here, good to see you. Um, we're going through the book of Genesis. We're in chapter six tonight. Uh, last week on Easter, I did a unique sermon on genealogy, uh, the genealogy in Easter, and the connection of Jesus's genealogies to the genealogies we find in uh, Genesis four and five. So that was a fun Easter sermon. It was a unique Easter sermon. Like I said last time, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone do that. So that might be my claim to fame, the genealogy Easter sermon. Uh, but this week we're talking about Genesis 6. Genesis 6, 1 all the way to 7, 5. And we're starting the story, a tragic story, but a well-known story, right? A, a really, it's a, we consider it like a children's story, right? It's like one of the first stories that the kids hear about the Bible is Noah and all his fun animals. And how fun it was probably to find them all. Well, if you know the story, it's actually not a fun, happy kid story. It's a horrific story. It's a story of deep, deep grief for humanity and God. And one that is marked by an undescribable terror. Right? This is a, a horrific story. And yet in it, in the story of judgment we find salvation. That's the beauty of the story of Noah. So we ended last week at the end of chapter 5, and if you remember, the end of chapter 5 is, is going through the genealogy of Seth's line, the line of Seth. And it ends at this place with this man, Noah. And remember, his father Lamech named him Noah because he thought he will bring rest. Rest. Noah in Hebrew means rest. It means a rest. And he says he's going to bring rest from the toil of our labor. He's going to bring rest from the curse on the ground. Right? Calling back to Genesis 3. Lamech is prophesying about his son, what kind of man he will be. He's going to be this kind of messianic figure, right? He's going to bring rest from the curse. That's who he's proclaiming Noah is going to be. But if, if you're new to the story or if, you know, if you're the original readers of this book, you don't necessarily know how that's going to pan out. But why is he saying all these things about his son? We're going to find out who his son is tonight. So this week I titled the sermon, Blameless in His Generation. Blameless in His Generation. We're going to find out what kind of man Noah is. This Noah prophesied over by his father. We're going to find out what type. We're going to see what we can learn from that. And we're going to hear about the deep heart of God. What God's heart is feeling in this moment. As we've seen the expansion of earth, right? We started, it's just one man, Adam. 
the man. And then there's Eve. They, the Lord creates Eve out of his side. And then they have two kids, and that goes awry real quick. Cain murders his brother Abel. And then they have a new son. His name is Seth. And, and we see that humanity is starting to fulfill this be fruitful and multiply command. Right? They're starting to spread out. People are starting to fulfill their place on the earth. But what does that mean? What does that look like? How does God feel about this multiplying of humanity? That's what we see in Genesis 6. But first there's this interlude, and it's a wild story. If you've read Genesis 6, it's a wild intro. And there's a lot of questions. And I hope tonight, uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on it in our sermon, but I hope tonight, if you have some questions, we can talk about it afterwards. But this is the, the Nephilim passage, right? The, this, this idea of the sons of God and the daughters of men. It opens this way in verse 1 of Genesis 6. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Cryptic passage. The most debated part about it is, is right at the beginning. Who are these sons of God? Who are these uh, sons of God and what is their connection to this daughters of men? Well, there's three main theories. The, the first is this, that it's actually just a way of referring to, to people. This is just normal. People are just multiplying like God intended they use the term sons of God and daughters of men, but there's really not a distinction between them. It's just saying men and women were still getting together and procreating. That's one interpretation. The second is, if you remember what we read last week, what was Genesis 4? It was Cain's genealogy. And what was Genesis 5? It was Seth's genealogy. So the second interpretation says, the sons of God are the righteous people of Seth's line, intermarrying with the unrighteous people of Cain's line, which would, be, uh, which would be the daughters of men, right? Cain's line. The third interpretation, and this is the one most people struggle with, is that this is about angelic beings. The sons of God are angels, and they're intermarrying with humans. That is what's going on. Now, again, the main struggle with that idea is that most people are naturalists. They don't believe in the supernatural. So it's very hard to try and posit something like spirit beings were intermarrying with humans and not be laughed out of the scholarly world or something like that, right? Because that, we're naturalists at heart. That's the Western world. We don't really believe in the supernatural as a society. Good Christians, though, do believe in spiritual world. They do believe in supernatural. Obviously, our God does supernatural things. He is supernatural. So I'm going to tell you why I actually think that's the correct interpretation, and here's why. Sons of God is a specific term, and it's used, if you were here uh, for the spiritual warfare series, I already addressed this. Sons of God is a specific term, and it's used in a specific way in the Old Testament. It only refers to angelic beings. Okay? It shows up in two specific places. They're both in Job. 
right? Job 1 has a specific reference at the very beginning of the book. The sons of God came before the Lord, right? They were presenting themselves before the Lord. And who comes among them? Satan. Satan comes among them, right? Satan is ostensibly right, fits right at home in this idea of the sons of God, right? Look, here's Job 1, right here, right? There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. Satan fits right in. Satan is a spiritual being. So whatever these sons of God are, they're presenting themselves before the Lord, and Satan walks in like, he, like he's part of the team. Like he's just there. There's nothing odd about Satan being among them because they're spiritual beings. The second is in Job 38. Remember in Job 38, the Lord himself is responding to Job. It's at the very end of the book. And in Job 38, God says this. He's, he's talking to Job about the wisdom it took to create the world. And he says this. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? Since you know. Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Whatever these sons of God are, they were there prior to the foundation of the earth. Right? That's what this passage says. The sons of God shouted for joy when the earth was being created. This is not human people, in my opinion. This is angelic beings. Whatever the case, what is going on here in Genesis 6, the Lord is not happy about. It is not a good thing. The intermarrying piece is not something he's happy about. Now, we don't see, at least in Genesis 6, we don't see his reaction to the spiritual side of things. But we do see his reaction to humanity. His reaction to humanity is that this is evil, and he's going to cut short their life. At this point, how long have people been living, according to the text? 900 years. years. 969 is the longest, the oldest person we've seen, Methuselah. He's 969, right? And all of a sudden, the Lord says, I am tired of striving with men. No longer. No longer. His days will be 120 years. Now, God is gracious. He doesn't immediately do it. You'll see these long extended lifetimes even after the flood. But quickly, by the time we get to Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, these patriarchs, at the most, like, they're living 140 years. Their lives are significantly shortened. So the Lord holds true to his word. He does it in a gracious way. It's a slow come about. But he holds true. He is tired of the length of their lives. And we're going to see why in a minute. We'll see why he's tired of the length of their lives. Then it says this, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, right? And also afterward. Again, this is cryptic. Nephilim, if it relates to the word that most people think it does, nephal, which is a Hebrew word, that literally means, it's nice, it's an easy memory word when you're learning Hebrew, it means to fall, right? To fall. The Nephilim, if that's the actual root, they're the fallen ones. The fallen ones. So here's the thing that's mysterious about them. We don't know if Nephilim is referring to the children of these intermarriages or not. It does not say. In the Hebrew text, it's not explicit whether these children who are, are these children the mighty men? Or are the Nephilim the mighty men? We don't know. Because it's ambiguous. It doesn't say in the text. 
But whatever the case, these were great warriors. Whether it's the children of these intermarriages or the Nephilim, they're great warriors, men of old. Right? This is, this is language of war. These were powerful beings. They were fighters. Okay, let's see how God feels about this. So we just heard he's going to cut short their life. Here's what he says next. <clears throat> the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We're going to stop for a minute. We're going to look at this term, sorry. It's a significant theological term, so I want to stop and talk about it for a minute. The word in Hebrew is nacham, nacham. And it's an important word because it's most likely the root where noach comes from. It's a play on words. It's, it's, it's an irony. Noah, the one who was to be, bring rest, the word rest, and when Lamech says this, he's going to bring rest for us, is Naham. Naham is used in two ways in Hebrew. One, it's to, to comfort someone. It's to comfort someone who's grieving. If they're sad and you want to console them, you're Nachaming them. And the other is this. When you repent, you are nachamin. You are repenting. You're grieved over what you've done. Now, we don't typically apply that word, repent, to the Lord, right? So typically what we'll translate it as is relent. He, the Lord relented. But it's the same word. It's nacham. What this is saying is that, the, that God repented of making man. Think about the gravity of that. I, it's not like, oh, he's looking down. This is a sorry situation. Like we use that term. This is a sorry situation. It's sad. No, he's saying, I am literally sorry that I made them. Obviously, the Lord doesn't have to ask forgiveness. That's not what I'm implying. But it's, it's like, like, I can't believe I did that. That is the severity with which the Lord views this. He's sorry. He, he is repenting of making man. And it says he was grieved in his heart. Grieved in his heart. This is a heavy word in Hebrew. A heavy word. It's the same word that's used for Levi and Simeon when they find out Dinah was raped later on in Genesis. That's grief. That's the same Hebrew word. It's the same word that Jonathan felt. When he finds out his father Saul wants to kill his best friend David, he was grieved. It's the same word that Isaiah uses to talk about what the pain of slavery feels like. This Hebrew word here, atzav. Grief. Grief. That's the level of grief the Lord is feeling about humanity because they are so wicked. And he says, I'm going to block them out. Like they never were even here. I will remove them from memory. But he says this, Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
the Lord in his graciousness. He finds one man, one man who finds favor. And it's Noah. Maybe Lamech was right about this, this, this boy, this man. Right? Maybe his boy, his prophecy rung true. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, we're in a new section now. Now starting the genealogy again, right? These are the records of the generations of Noah. Remember I told you last week. It's like we're walking down a genealogy, looking at a family tree, and every once in a while the narrator goes, oh, here's a story. I got a story about that one. So here we are, Noah. Oh, I got a story about Noah. We stop the genealogy to say this. Noah was a righteous man blameless in his time. The word there is generation. He was blameless among his generation. Noah walked with God. There is not many places in Scripture that you find a greater description of a man of God than this for Noah. He was righteous. He did what was right. right? He was a righteous man. That was what was requ- required of every Israelite. They would be righteous. We might use the word, he was a good man, right? He was a good man. He was a moral man. He was a just man. But not only was he righteous, no, he was greater. He was blameless. He was perfect. He was without blemish. This is the same word used for the spotless sacrifice. Blemishless. They had to bring a blemishless lamb to be sacrificed. That's this word. Blameless among his generation. And Noah walked with God. Only two people in Scripture are said to have walked with God in the Old Testament. Noah and his ancestor Enoch. And Enoch walked with God and was no more. Yeah, he was not. He was not. Noah is said to walk with God, just like Enoch, like his great-great-great-great-grandfather. Noah became the father of three sons. Actually, sorry, let me back up for one second. Here's a good, a good point. I always used to say this passage was in Jeremiah. I don't know why I thought it was in Jeremiah, but it's in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 14. When Jerusalem is about to be judged, Jerusalem's about to be destroyed because the Lord has said, I've had my fill. It's time. Even my people will not escape judgment forever. They continue to do evil. They've done it for generations. And the time has come for punishment. And when he does, he says this in Ezekiel. It's a beautiful statement, and it shows you the type of man Noah was. Ezekiel 14. He's talking about bringing plagues. He's talking about uh, famine and pestilence and bringing all these things on a people. And he says this about Noah. He's speaking to Ezekiel. He says, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of blood, s- bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst. By their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. And as the passage goes on, he says, These three men could only deliver themselves, not even their sons or their daughters. Okay? Now he's saying that the Lord is saying that their sin is so severe of Jerusalem that he's going to destroy them. Even these three men couldn't protect them. But think about that. The Lord's using these men as the example of human righteousness. He's saying, even if these men were here, the best men I've known, 
I would not stop the judgment that is coming. They would only save themselves by their righteousness. They would only deliver themselves because they are good men. That's the type of man Noah is. We do not marvel at that enough. These are some serious words from God about what type of person this was. And oddly enough, when we read the rest of the flood story, you don't hear a word from Noah. Not one word. The thing that defines Noah is obedience. He does what the Lord commands. Always. And until we get to the drunken story, which is the sad part of Noah, right? Until we get to that piece, you don't hear a word from Noah. He never says a thing. So, Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Violence here doesn't just mean, like, murder. Actually, violence means any way we take advantage of our neighbor. The way we, it it might involve force, it might involve, you know, brutality, but it doesn't have to. It could be coercion, it could be fraud, it could be all these ways we take advantage of each other. That's what violence here means. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. So he says to Noah, make for yourself an ark out of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with a lower, a second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. First time covenant is used in the Bible first time. Significant theological word. Covenant. With Noah, he is making a covenant. A deal. A bargain. They will be in covenant relationship. You shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone, you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean too, a male and his female. Remember what I told you about Genesis. Exodus looms large over it, right? This defining event of the Old Testament. Moses, the mediator. The redemption story of Exodus. Look, they're already concerned with Leviticus, right? He's saying bring clean animals. Why would would God tell Noah to bring more of the clean animals than the unclean animals? 
he's already preparing Noah for sacrifice. Right? Because if he takes the two and sacrifices them, that species is dead. Right? There's no, there's no hope for it. So he's already saying, take more of the sacrificial animals. Of course, the readers of this, the original Israelites, when they read it, they get it. They're like, oh, this is the sacrificial system. Something that they had known, something that they recognized. Right here, even here, God's preparing them for the sacrifice. We'll see that next week. Right? You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female. Of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after one more week, seven more days, I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights. And I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. That's where we stop tonight. I know I, I read a lot there at the end. I didn't stop and do much commenting like I normally do. But I want you to see these stories in a, in a fuller picture. And next week we'll go through the whole flood story, almost two chapters. But here we're stopping because I wanted to stop before we get to the flood to think about Noah and the type of man he is. The type of man that does whatever the Lord tells him. Right? Blameless among his generation. Like that Ezekiel passage I told you. But when judgment has come, when it's time for judgment, even his righteousness will only save himself. Actually, you know, it's odd. The scripture is really, really clear. That righteous people preserve their communities. They protect their communities. Abraham, we're going to see that when we get to Genesis 18. Remember Abraham bargaining with the Lord? If there's just a few less righteous, what about then, God? Abraham, as a righteous man, protects his people. Here's what I want to say tonight. Here's what I want to say tonight. I know. I know in this congregation, because I've had conversation with, with many of you, and I know many other people out there in the world think that, that we're in the end times. This is it. We're, we're at the end. Now, I don't think that, and it's fine that you think that. I don't think that. But here's the thing. If we're at the end, if we're at the end, there's nothing we can do for people. If we're at the end, our righteousness will only save ourselves. Judgment is here. But, but if I'm right and we're not there yet, our righteousness will protect people. It will protect communities. It will protect society so that a few more might come. A few more might come. Because Noah is the type of man who is so righteous that his sons and his, his sons' wives and his wife are all saved with him because of his righteousness. What I'm calling us to is we have to examine our lives to be more righteous. Noah is a man righteous, blameless among his generation, and walks with God. He does that without the Holy Spirit. He does that before Jesus' time. He does that in the old, before the Old Covenant even exists. Noah is that type of man. How much more could we be? When we have the Spirit of God, when we have a new heart, Noah's heart wasn't changed like our hearts have been changed. That's the glory of the new covenant. Our hearts have been changed radically. 
We've been empowered to be righteous people in a way that Noah could only dream about. We've got to do life thinking about those things. We've got to be more righteous. It, because you know what? Ultimately, works do matter. They do matter. It's not salvation that is dependent upon works. But works do matter. God has called us to be a holy people. Just as He is holy, we're called to be holy. Right? He literally says, be perfect as I am perfect. Wow, what a high calling. What a high calling. We've got to do it. And, and why this passage strikes me so much is because I know there is so many people thinking we're at the end. Thinking that a judgment like this is coming. And I think it will. I think it will. I think, I think America is the Babylon of today. I mean, this is my own view. Everyone doesn't have to agree. This is my own view. I think America is the Babylon of today. There's no doubt judgment will come. It's come to every empire that's ever existed. America's day will come. But if it's not here yet, let's be righteous people and protect those around us. Let's offer them a chance. The Lord stays His hand. He stays His wrath when people are righteous. He, 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 he holds off on it. He is long-suffering and patient. And when there are righteous people around the Lord holds off so that we might give people a chance to <coughs> repent. All right, what's it say? Also in Ezekiel, the Lord doesn't desire that the wicked would perish. He wants them to repent. He wants them to be changed. He wants them to give up their wickedness. We have the chance of people of, as people of righteousness to allow a chance, allow more time that people might be changed, that they might be saved. But we got to start looking like Noah. we got to start being people that are blameless among their generation. Man, these generations have gone really awry. And I say that in my own life as a millennial. I think it's easy for older generations to look down at millennials and say, man, your generation's really gone awry. I get it. But I hate to tell you this, the boomers have done a lot of evil too. As every generation has before it, look at Noah's. Only you have been righteous out of everyone. Blameless among his generation. We need more people. We need more men and women to be blameless among their generation. We, we need to be a community filled with forgiveness. Ready to be gracious. Ready to be kind. But we also need to be people that encourage each other, that build each other up, that lift each other up to say, be blameless among your generation. Be blameless among your generation. Be the best of the best. Because that's what's going to change people's lives. And when people see that, when people see holy men and women, I think that's the number one way people come to faith. Come to Jesus. They see something in a holy person that attracts them. That says, I wish, why isn't my life like that? Why do they have joy? Why is it when they have tragedies that they can grieve rightly and yet still have hope? How is that possible? How does that make sense? Why do I not have that? Why is everything in my life complaint and grumbling? I 
think people are, are challenged by that. I think people are changed by that. And I think we have to be that type of people. That's my prayer for you tonight. And here's the thing. And, and this is a cultural statement, and I'll acknowledge that. I tend to stay away from cultural statements, but I'm going to say this one. It's subtle. But it's true. I was thinking about this this last week. The church does really, really well when it leads the charge of doing something good. It does not do very well when it gloms on to what the world is doing. It never does. It always leaves the church with a bunch of black marks in their record. When the church is, is called to do something, when they're acting like the church, they always lead, lead the way on doing what's right. Why? Because they're the church. The world doesn't know what's good and what's wrong. They don't know what, what God defines as good, right? We talked about sin. What is sin? Self-definition of good and evil. We are the people that know what God says is right and wrong. What is good and evil. We have to lead the charge on those things. If we're waiting around for the world to say something, or waiting around for the moment the world decides something is important, and then we're like, yeah, I agree. We always do it wrong. Because we get sucked into their methods. We get sucked into their ideas. We get sucked into all the other worldly things that might get pulled in around something that arguably is, is a good idea or maybe a good social value. But it's, it's packed up with all these other worldly things. It's packed up with all the other methods and ideas and ideologies of the world. The church should lead the way. They should not, they should not attach themselves to the world's way. The church is called to lead. And when we lead out, we do right. We lead well. Because we're the church. We're the church. So, what I'm saying is we need to be those people to lead out. We need to be those people to lead out and be blameless among our generation. Let's not hang back and, and let other people set the pace. We're called to be the ones who are doing good in the world. Bringing light to serious things. Bringing light to things that are important. We're called to do those things. That's my prayer for you tonight. My prayer for you tonight is that you would be one of those blameless. Blameless among your generation. I think we can do it like Noah. I really do. I think we can do it because we've been empowered. We've been empowered by, in a way that Noah couldn't, could not even have fathomed in the Old Testament. We've been given more than the Old Testament saints had. We've been given more. And our, our situations in life, let's all be honest. For all of us sitting in this room, as Americans, as, as uh, this group here, we have been privileged. We have been blessed. We live a comfortable life. And Christians throughout history, and even in other parts of the world today, do not have what we have. They have not seen the same, uh, at least material favor that we have. God has been very gracious to us. We have to consider that and we have to make the best of that because God's given us that to be good stewards of. He's given us all that we have so that we can be good stewards of those things. So my prayer for you tonight is, yes, we're comfortable. Yes, we are uh, very lucky. We're blessed to have what we have. Let's use it to be blameless. 
Let's use it to be blameless among our generation. Let's use it to be men and women like Noah. Righteous, blameless, and walked with God. What more could be said about a human? To be the kind of person you want to be if you could be those three things. Righteous, blameless, and walk with God. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray each person in this room would hear your voice tonight. Hear uh, what you want them to do, where you want them to go, the next steps for their life. And would you help them, change them again, recenter their hearts so that they could be blameless among their generation, that they would be filled with your spirit again, that they would be ready to do what is necessary to be men and women of righteousness, who are complete, who are whole, who long after you with everything in their being, and who, more than anything, they choose to walk in step with you. Walk along you so that their generation, the wicked of their generation, each one of us in different generations, from the kids downstairs uh, to the oldest, which I think is my dad, from all those generations, would we all see the wicked from those generations get saved. Because we were once them. We were once them. Lord, would you help us to show those who are around us in our, in our age groups, in our, in our times, would you help us to show them the light of Jesus Christ, the power of, of your Spirit, and the loving, gracious way of you, Father. We pray all these things in your name, by the, by the name of your Son and, and by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to turn it over to Tyler here. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to pray too, um, just like a closing prayer to bless us for the week. So, um, Lord, we thank you for this night. Thank you for this time that we can come together and be in community and fellowship with each other and um, just enjoy time with, with other people. And um, We thank you so much for Jeremy and for the heart you've uh, given him for your word and for preaching. Um, we're just so thankful for, for the words that he has for us and um, just how much we get to learn every week about about what your word says. And um, I pray that you would just bless him this week and um, and his time with his family and, and his time in his study that he would um, just be blessed. And I pray for all of us as we go throughout our week that we would remember the words from tonight, that we would remember... Um, remember the example that Noah gave us of how to be a righteous and a blameless person and um, Lord that we would in this week that we would be able to find favor in your eyes mm. that um, that we'd be able to touch other people around us and, and just be able to show them what your word says too and how we're supposed to be living in, in these dark times um, that we would be a light to them and um, just pray that you would help us have a good rest of our night and keep us all healthy and safe this week as we go about our weeks. Um, and uh, we just thank you so much, Lord. We love you. In your precious name, amen. Amen.